Hello, everyone. You are listening to Say No to Tyranny, CAS to Barbecue Podcast. We seek to flood the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Uh, how's everybody doing today? Um, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Um, we ask that you subscribe to our podcast. Tell a friend about it. Um, we really would appreciate that. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify for easy listening. Uh, the podcast is all about glorifying God in all areas of life. Christ is king and ruling over every square inch of the earth. Therefore, all of Christ for all of life. So today, I am joined by a fellow, a gentleman, by the name of David Hewitt. Um, David Hewitt is running for state representative in District 91. And uh, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing well this evening, Matt. Thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. I love the intro that you just gave. I'm all on board with that. You know, well, thank you for that. So that's always been the point of my podcast is to glorify God. And, you know, so I don't know if you know much about my story and all my listeners do because I say it about every time I have a podcast and it's just to fill other people in that may not be familiar. And so we got, obviously we're Christians. We're, um, my wife and I, we are, we are, um, we are Christ followers. We take it seriously. He is our Lord. He is our King. And when the virus hit when, when when COVID hit. They started the government started overreaching, and and we at that point in our we own a restaurant, uh, Yergi's Barbecue, and at mm -hmm. that point they were wanting us to put up plexiglass and tables, separate tables. Only twenty five percent of people can be in your restaurant. We complied to all that, and then it came down to the mask. And when they started implementing the mask, we started realizing, hey, you know what? This really isn't about a virus. This is about government overreach. This is about this is about something bigger. Um, this is, they're not telling us the whole truth here and it became evident. So we decided to stand and say, we are not going to comply to the governor's edicts any longer. And through that, our restaurant got shut down. And because of that, I started a podcast and, and we want to glorify God and we want to glorify God in a way in all areas of life, but including in that area of life of politics and I know that you're a strong Christian conservative um, person running for Republican office. Um, one thing that I get pushed back for all the time is that a lot of Christians don't think that Christians belong in politics. Do you have any pushback with that, or do you where you live? Do people have that kind of mentality? There are some that do. It depends on what church you go to. I tend, just from your intro, I can tell that we're very closely aligned with regard to our theological convictions on such things. The The reality is, I agree with you completely. Jesus is king, and he's not just king over the church or king over the family. He's king over the state as well. The entire earth is the Lord's, everything in it, Psalm 24.1. And it is definitely a good thing for Christians to be involved in politics. Everything belongs to him, and we ought to desire the state to honor God and everything that it does as well. Something that I have talked with people about on occasion, and I've had to think about it a lot myself over the years, is it's important to have a proper understanding of what has come to be called the teaching of the doctrine, is the separation of church and state. 
Many people these days tend to understand that as meaning that the church and the state shouldn't have anything at all to do with each other, and keep keep God out of politics, keep politics out of the church. That's not at all what it meant, not originally. The point is, is that there are different jurisdictions. The, the church has certain things that it does that God has given it to do, and the state has things that it does that God has given it to do. They're not the same, they're different. It wouldn't be appropriate, for example, say, for a uh, state legislator to walk into someone's church, push the pastor out of the pulpit and say, I'm preaching here this Sunday morning because I'm from I'm in charge, I'm from the state, and I have that authority. That's ridiculous. Neither would it be appropriate for the same pastor to go and push the legislator out of his seat in the state house and say, I'm going to be the one drafting on and voting on legislation today. No, that's not how it works. That's what the separation really is. But both of those organizations, the church and the state, answer to God, and they are bound to obey him. He is king. So any law that exists ought to reflect what God himself has said and must not be in any kind of contradiction to what he has said. Yeah, that is so true. So what you're getting into is the sphere of governments, right, that God has ordained yes. through Scripture, and there's there's four of them. There's individual sphere of government, so we are, we are accountable to God on how we live our lives individually. The, through Scripture, he teaches us how to live our lives to a life that is pleasing to him once we once we um, become saved through Jesus Christ and and so then you have the family and so the family is another sphere of government and then you have the church which is another sphere of government and then you have the state so anytime those spheres of government um, those different spheres of government intertwine everything becomes really messy now a lot some people saying well yeah they would agree with that. But those same people, or I'm afraid that people in general, do not see this whole COVID thing that the governor has done over the last two years as them um, coming into churches and, and telling them that they can't meet or they have to social distance. Or it even got to the point where the governor told the churches how to take communion. And, and, and it, in Indiana, in our county, right. I, across every county in Indiana. And so, and a lot of churches comply to that. What, what, what would you say to, obviously we know that's overreach of the government, like you laid out beautifully on the different spheres, but what would you personally say to the governor and what he did coming into the churches and telling them how they need to worship God? Well, if the churches decide of their own volition that they're going to say, fine, we're going to go along with some of this for a while, that's well, that still remains within the jurisdiction of the church and their elders to do such a thing. But to forcibly impose it and to insist upon it, that does cross that line. The church, the churches decide when their meeting times are, how, if they're going to be meeting or not, depending on various circumstances. They're the ones who are to be administering the, the well, some churches call them ordinances, some call them sacraments. Uh, the Lord's Supper, in that case, what you're talking about, that's what the churches do. And that isn't appropriate for the state to reach into that at all. But if you want to go back it up even more than that, and I mentioned this in a recent advertisement I just put out yesterday, that uh, lockdowns and those kinds of restrictions are, even on the state level, are unconstitutional. The Indiana Constitution, under our Bill of Rights, which is Article 1, Section 31, says, No law shall restrain any of the inhabitants of the state from assembling together in a peaceable manner to consult for their common good, nor from instructing their representatives, nor from applying to the General Assembly for a redress of grievances. There are several different parts to that, but I just honed in on one of the first ones. No law shall restrain them, go a little farther, from assembling together in a peaceable manner to consult for their common good. That's pretty broad. And meeting together as a church body 
to worship God is definitely coming together for their common good. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's any clearer example than that. But you could also raise the make the case for a bunch of friends getting together at a restaurant, enjoying a meal together after a stressful week at work. They're meeting together for their common good, and they're being peaceable. So having lockdowns like that, it really does violate the Constitution. It is unconstitutional, and they ought never to have existed in the first place, emergency or not. Um, so having said that, David, say you would have ran for office last election and you would have been in office for when this all started. Um, mm -hmm. How would you have done things differently as a state representative than what either your representative did or what my representative did? Well, I would have done what my representative did. My representative is John Jacob. Oh, so I helped. So get he got redistrict, right? So is he yes, still your representative? He's not. That's why I'm running. Okay. That's gotcha. part of the story because I, the subdivision where I live, I live in Southern Dunes in Southwest Indianapolis. And the dividing line between District 91, which I'm in now, and District 93 ran right along the road in the middle of our subdivision. I was on the District 93 side. And John and I are good friends. We have uh, worked together outside of the abortion clinics in Indianapolis on more than a few occasions. And I was more than happy to help with his campaign and help him get elected, we did some door-to-door -door work for him. There was a decision that had to be made that it was either going to be him or me to run for District 93 against the incumbent. And it came down to it, thankfully, that it ended up being him for multiple reasons now that I can see. One of them happened to be that I ended up coming down with COVID in February of 2020, right in the middle of the legislative session. I would not have been able to be present to do any of the voting. So in God's good providence, that worked out that yeah. way. Yeah. So um, John and Kurt have been trying to work on a House concurrent resolution to end the state of emergency and to get over it and to get us finally completely out of all this stuff. But that is not being supported in the House of Representatives. And I'm just becoming increasingly convinced that we are dealing with a house full of Republicans in name only. And we need to have some people replace them. That's the hard reason I'm running. That is that. Yes. And I got a question. Have we ever met outside of one of those abortion clinics? I'm not sure. Okay. We might have. I, I wonder. Um, I didn't know. Uh, so I, when I went, I usually went to Arlington um, with Brian and, and Cameron Fry, and uh, Brian Shrank was usually there. And then um, mm -hmm. uh, I met I, Jason Austin. Do you know Jason? The name sounds familiar. Okay. I definitely know Brian right. Shrank and yep. Cameron Gray. I'm actually going to be preaching at their church this coming Sunday morning. All right. Okay. Well, you know why I didn't know any of this, but now it's all... I know exactly where you're coming from now, so that's good. All right. Uh, um, but, uh, no, that's good. So, yeah, you know what? I've, I've personally been to Arlington many a times and uh, fighting for the unborn. So, um, having said that, you have some priorities you listed down on your uh, Facebook Certainly page. Do. And you start with that. You start you, – I don't know if you put them in any certain order or not, but the first one on your priorities is end abortion in Indiana outright, defying SCOTUS if we have to. It is Absolutely. murder and must not continue. There it is. Because it's murder, it must not continue. It's This is something that I've, I've been – I've been involved with, let's see, if you want to go all the way back, when I was in high school, my mother and my stepdad served with a crisis pregnancy center in Illinois, and I've been working on the, with this issue 
going to say it's about 25 years now, I suppose, off and on with, if you want to go back that So far. 25 years ago, David, were you where you're at today on it, or were you more no. right-to-life type mentality? Probably. I didn't have as much information about it as I do today, for sure. I have progressed in my understanding. But the idea was the, the general consensus at the time, and this is before there was an abolitionist movement, as it's come to be called, yeah. or an immediate movement long before that. The idea, of course, was to try to do what we could to get Roe versus Wade overturned. And then the idea is once that's done, then abortion can go by the wayside because, well, SCOTUS is in the way. Therefore, we have to deal with that first. And that ideology is still the predominant understanding of most of the right to life organizations, what I like to call the pro-life establishment organizations. But the reason I phrased it the way I did on my page is because we need to classify abortion rightly and if we really are going to believe that it's murder and the and the indiana indiana state law identifies life human life beginning at conception which is correct ironically it identifies it in the same place where it talks about being allowed to terminate a human life under abortion under circumstance certain circumstances which just boggles my mind yeah. but be that as it may that is a correct statement human life does begin at conception and because of that we have a unique human being that we're dealing with inside of his or her mother's womb to terminate that child, to execute him. Premeditated taking of innocent human life, that's what murder is. Yeah. It is unjust, it cannot continue. There have been discussions that I've had, a lot, you've probably heard a lot of them too with regard to the Texas law that was passed not too terribly long ago, where they have uh, six weeks is the cutoff at that point. Yeah. And many people have talked about how good the law is because it has saved many babies' lives. But that's not the same thing as talking about whether or not a law is just. Everybody can rejoice and give thanks that there are babies' lives that are being saved. That's that's yeah, good. Absolutely. But, but if you're going to say that something is just, if you allow for the premeditated taking of innocent human life up to that sixth week, then you're still allowing for murder. And it can't be considered just. Because you're saying murder is fine until here. That's not just. It can't be. By definition so we need to end it and because it is murder the supreme court decision they are allowing for murder to happen in our state i said no we cannot allow that and as lesser magistrates we as the state legislatures governors uh senators state senators whatever need to step forward and say look this cannot happen here we're not going to let you authorize the murder of our citizens and they That's, just put our foot down and get in the way so, um, the doctrine of the lesser mastery, are you familiar with Matt Trella? I am. I okay. have met Matt Trella on one occasion. Okay. So, that is a great book, by the way, if you're listening to this and you want to read up on this. Um, I, it's called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate by, uh, Matt Trella. Um, and that is where you interpose for obviously in this case, the unborn baby, right? But it's a bigger than mm -hmm. that. You interpose for any one of your constituents that you are serving to protect them from a government that is above your head. So it'd be the governor, the fe the state uh, government, the federal government, you mm -hmm. interpose on, on their behalf. So really you're saying, Hey, I will get my teeth kicked in to protect you because this is what's right. And this is what's godly. Is that correct? Exactly. That is the bottom line. If, if we really are desirous to come into a situation and truly to do justice, 
Um, John Jacob has mentioned that in verse Deuteronomy 16.20 or Exodus chapter 23, not going along with the crowd if they're going to be doing wickedness, but do, not doing those kinds of things. To do justice and only justice, that is the requirement of those who are in authority in government situations. If we're really going to do that, then we do not have a choice except to say, listen, your murder is going on. We must stop it. And we need to pass laws to that effect and do what we have to to keep murder from happening. And something else that's interesting, and this is something that's been brought up, too. I've heard it with regard to some things that Jeff Durbin from Apologia Church, the End Abortion Now group, has said at abortionnow.com. And I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that or not. I certainly recommend them as much as I would recommend anyone in, in this fight. The, the so they have two documentaries. Uh, they're both one. Uh, babies are murdered here. Yes. One and babies are murdered here too. And very, check those out too. But the it's something that he says very frequently with regard to the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision is that it's a court opinion and not law, and that is an accurate statement. There have the, the legislative branches, be it in the federal level or at the state level, the ones that make laws that are then passed and signed into law by the chief executive, be he the president or governor. That's when laws are made. The Supreme Court made a decision and invented the so-called right to abortion out of thin air. That's not in the Constitution anywhere. It's something that couldn't be. It was an erroneous decision based on bad information and things that they thought were facts that were not. Not to mention a little bit of deception worked in there for good measure, right? Yeah. So it is a wrong decision, much in the same way that the Dred Scott decision was a wrong decision and ought never have been made. And let's see, we're going on 49 years into this wickedness come January 23rd next Sunday. And it needs it needs to end. Um, just to back up here a second, this is the definition I was looking for. This is the definition of the lesser magistrate doctrine. Okay. When the higher-ranking civil authority makes unjust or immoral law, policy, or court opinion, the lower or lesser-ranking civil authority have the God-given right and duty to interpose and refuse to obey the superior authority, and if necessarily, openly resist the higher civil authority and that's what you're saying you're willing to do absolutely and this is not something that is not without precedent that's what the 10th amendment to the united states constitution is really all about that authorize that gives any whatever powers are not enumerated to the federal government to the states and to the people and there have been several laws passed around the country to resist federal laws on one in one way or another uh, some may be for good, some may be not so good. And just some examples for that, I know that there have been states that have allowed for quote-unquote sanctuary cities to have people be able to stay there who are in the country illegally, and that is a violation of federal law, but yet they're passing these laws on the state level to allow that to happen. Colorado was the first state to decriminalize and legalize recreational marijuana use, if memory serves correctly. And still, at the federal level, such use of marijuana is illegal. Um, on the flip side of things, Kentucky passed a law during the Obama administration where they said that if any federal marshal were to come into the state of Kentucky to try to enforce any federal laws that were made that were in violation of the Second Amendment to the Constitution, such federal marshals were subject to arrest by state authorities. This kind of thing does happen. It's called nullification. That's the doctrine of nullification, to nullify federal statutes of various kinds in order to uphold the rights of its citizens. We could do it with this, but for whatever reason, people just are not willing to. What do you think that reason is, David? I think there are a few reasons. One of the reasons is, I think, related to what I was saying earlier as to what my original position was on the pro-life on pro-life matters. That is just what is ingrained into us. We seem to think that this is the way things have to be, and there really hasn't been another option 
for such a long time, at least in our own minds. And when something else comes up, like, wait, that can't be right. We have to do it this way. Rather than giving it a decent hearing, that's what they stick with. I think that's the case sometimes. There are other reasons. Um, one of them is cowardice. <laughs> Let's just be straight, right? Because in order to do this, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight an uncomfortable battle, and there will be personal loss to you for fighting this battle. Just look what's happened with Curt Nisley and John Jacob in the Indiana General Assembly trying to get this forward. They have not fared well in the opinions of others, especially their colleagues in the Indiana General Assembly. Yeah. Um, there's the issue of money. I don't know how much of this is true, but given the fact that the pro-life establishment organizations have raised over the course of the last 50 years a quarter billion dollars to fight abortion and are continuing to do so, it would not surprise me in the least if there were people in those organizations that don't necessarily wish to see abortion end like that because their source of income would disappear. Is that the case for all of them? I don't believe that, no. But is it the case for some? That would not surprise me. So those are some reasons off the top of my head that I can think of. So the uh, Supreme Court uh, heard a case out of Mississippi, uh, I believe, that it allows viability to be 16 weeks or something like that. And they're going to make a announcement or their judgment in June. And if they come back and say, yeah, we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade, um, and you're elected into the state house, I know you want to end abortion. I know you want to <laughs> abolish it completely. If there is a heartbeat bill there, which we're not, I get that we're not looking for, but that's still something that you probably would support if the abolition bill gets killed like it always does. And there's a heartbeat bill on the table. That is an excellent question. I thought about that quite a bit. The answer, I suppose, would depend on what the content of the, of the bill is. If it's simply trying to do something that, that set forward a bill that really isn't going to do any good, it really isn't going to save lives, it really isn't going to move us, it really isn't calling for the absolute abolishing of abortion, then no, I couldn't support it. And I would really have a hard time supporting it anyway, and this is something that I would have to pray more about if I've ever really presented with that kind of a situation. Because I have to keep getting hung up on that statement from Deuteronomy 16.20 that we are only to do justice. And any bill that's going to go forward and say, okay, up until the point of you're having, you're not permitted to, to perform abortions after a heartbeat is detected, but you have... X amount of time before then, where abortions are still permitted, that does not meet the litmus test of justice. So, given what I've also heard on testimony on the other side of things, that in most of those cases, if not the major vast majority of them, that the abortionists are going to find ways around it anyway, and the fact that they do. Um, you mentioned the Babies Are Murdered Here too documentary, and they had a scene in that where they give an example from an ultrasound technician, uh, Sarah Cleveland, I think her name is. Yeah. And she was demonstrating how easy it would be not to find the baby and not to find a heartbeat with an ultrasound machine. And it is. It's really easy to mess that up. So and then they can do that and then falsify information to say that it's a certain age when the um, unborn child is not a certain age. I have some testimony of this very thing happening actually on a different level over at one of the abortion mills in Indianapolis. It's the only save I've been able to be 100% certain that I've witnessed. I've been doing this for a long time, but it's it's been a rough road in many ways. But on one, on one particular occasion, um, a brother and I were out there preaching, and he was really going at it with a couple that were waiting in a pickup truck. 
out in front of the abortion mill. And at one point, this guy gets out of his truck and starts with a very angry look on his face. His fist clenched, starts walking toward my brother who was preaching. I walk over there, too, wondering if he's going to hit him. And he starts crying. And like a long story short, he believed that his wife had been unfaithful to him and was pregnant with another man's child. But after talking with us and praying with us, he decided to leave. He came down from uh, way out way out of town. And a short time afterwards, he sent a text message to this brother and said, we're so glad we talked to you. This needs to end. That place needs to shut down. They told us the baby was, I think they said 10 weeks. He's actually 12. In other words, that was his baby, not the baby of the person who slept with his wife. So they lied to him. And it doesn't really surprise me, does it you? People who are willing to murder innocent children are going to tell a little white lie to get a little extra money or to get around a regulation. This is what they do. And I think we're really fooling ourselves if we think that by passing a particular regulation, say, okay, up to this period of time, you're allowed to perform abortions, but after this, no. I mean, how many... I mean, how many falsified documents with regard to gestational age have been put through in order to get certain abortions done? I would not be surprised in the least if they were more than we'd ever care to consider. Right. I mean, if they're willing to murder, if they have murder in their heart like that and murder on their lips, why wouldn't they try to skirt around laws to get their, you know, their debauchery accomplished? My point exactly. Right. I mean, the people just don't understand we put lipstick on it as a society as it's really just a woman's health issue and and people can you know go to bed at night and be comfortable thinking oh yeah it's just a woman's health issue makes them sleep a little easier maybe but i mean we've been talking about how it's murder and there's no way around that and so that brings me to my next point on this is so i sat down with a right to life guy he's he's head he's a head of um, a big right to life organization. And I had lunch with him a couple weeks ago. And he said that the, one of the biggest reasons why he would never support Nisley's bill is because in that bill, the woman gets criminally, criminally punished. And mm-hmm. he doesn't, he thinks that 60% or he thinks that 60% of everybody going into abortion mills, having abortions are victims due to being manipulated to, into having their abortion. Now you said you sat outside these abortion mills in India and so have I, and I told him this too. That is not what I see when I see these women walking into the abortion mill. They know exactly what they're doing and they do deserve to be convicted of murder for murdering their baby what what's what what would you say to that i'd agree with you completely and there are several reasons why one you've already mentioned if he were actually to spend any time of his own outside one of these abortion mills and see these women going in here and how they respond and how they act sometimes flatly declaring that they're going in there to kill their baby and they say these kinds of things to us as we're waiting outside pleading with them not to do so but to back it up a little bit, are there situations where a young woman is forced into a situation where she is to abort her child? Yes, that does happen. I was listening to a message delivered at an end abortion now conference. I can listen to it last week where a pastor of a church in Louisiana. So the first time he went out to an abortion mill, several women went in and were just very, very brash, um, 
emboldened to murder their children. But there was one mother who brought, I think, her 13 or 14-year-old daughter who ended up getting pregnant. And her daughter was screaming, saying, she didn't want to do this. Don't make me do this, mom. But her mom shouted back, I am not going to parent your baby. And her mother took her in there and forced her to get her abortion. Now, does that happen? Yes, it does. And in the case of, of criminalizing abortion, which ought to happen, that mother would face some steep charges, murder charges herself. But is that what happens most of the time? I don't believe that for a moment. And it does need to be criminalized with penalties for murder attached to it. It doesn't mean that instantly everybody who goes into it to procure an abortion is going to be found guilty of murder there's going to be a trial there has to be witnesses like anything else but it has to be criminalized as murder and anybody who participates in it needs to be charged with it either as the murderer or as an accessory so the abortionist the mother the father or in this case that i just mentioned to you the mother of the young woman who is who ended up getting the abortion there has to be that kind of a charge for a couple of reasons one is a civil issue if there isn't a law broken then what are you really going to be charging someone with we're going to make it so that abortion is illegal that's great so if somebody does one does get an abortion then what there has to be some sort of a censuring a reprimand a punishment for this otherwise you don't have any kind of a law that you can enforce a law without teeth is not a law worth having for one secondly is on a spiritual matter, and Jeff Durbin over at Apologia has mentioned this, if you don't call abortion what God calls it, that is murder, then what do they need forgiveness for? They need forgiveness for the murder in their hearts and their actual murder that they have done that comes from God and God alone. And if they do, if you're not telling them that what they did is actually murder, then you're depriving them of gospel forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that is so true. And that's the thing. It's like, so we as a abolitionists, we get accused of not being loving a lot. Um, we, you know, I know right to life view us that way. I know the women walking in to the abortion mill views us that way that, you know, we're not really being that loving, but when we sit back and we define what true love really is and, 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 the scripture lays it out clearly. God is love. Okay. So, so right. what God's statutes and his, his, his law is, that is the most perfectly way we can love somebody. That is, that is the best we can do as human beings. And we do that even though it's hard and, it, and we say things like repent of your sin and we don't accept the fact that they're getting ready to go in there and murder their baby we get accused of not being loving and we should just be accepting. And that's this, that, that, that's kind of what I've been hearing a lot from a lot of people. And, but the truth of the matter is David is, I mean, you broke it down so nicely and that is we do, we, we do love. So we do love these women. We love the babies. We love God first and foremost. That's why we're out there doing what we're doing is because we know that, that that is what God wants, that is what God commands, and we know they need to repent of their sins so they can be saved by Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Um, and, and I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail here for a second, but have you been following that CB? <laughs> it is, but you know what? A lot of times my guests can, can really do a lot better job than me sometimes, so I try to okay. stay out of the way. But uh, <clears throat> have you been following that CB4 thing out of Canada? on uh, uh yes bill c4 yes c4 c4 yeah not c4 um 
And I was reading an article today. I my, Actually, my wife was reading it to me as we were driving down the road. And I know it had, I'm not sure if John MacArthur wrote it. I think maybe John MacArthur wrote it. And he said, ultimately, what that bill does is it it is unloving to the homosexual community in Canada because now they're saying it is illegal to bring them the gospel, mm-hmm. and the very thing they need to be saved, to be made right with God. And they, the government is trying to take that away from the homosexual community. Now, society would say, oh, this, the C4 bill is so loving because they're so accepting. But in reality, it is so hateful because the one thing that, those, that you know, the LGBTQ community needs is they need Christ, and the government's trying to take that away from them. So the most loving thing you could do is preach the gospel and tell them to repent. And I see that happening in the same way with the abortion industry. Like, that is how we're being loving, because we, we know what God commands, we know what's going to set these people free, because a lot of these women going into these abortion mills, they are unplanned pregnancy, they, they think their lives are over. They're all in a dire circumstance that they think that they'll never see any light at the end of the tunnel. But in reality, they're not looking to the true light. They're not looking to God who can, who can work miracles and to, who can save them and save their baby and save their life in a million different ways. And so I just want to make a point that what abolitionists do is the most loving thing a Christian could do towards another human being in that industry. I agree completely. You said it exactly right. Because part of what the issue is, is that they say that it's unloving, but what they've done is they've redefined the term love, kind of like they redefined the term for a lot of things these days, it seems. Love by what standard? Love by God's standard. He's the one who determines what love really is. After all, he calls himself love, does he not? You gotta know, he does. And we need to, if we're lying to someone that's not loving, we need to tell them the truth. We need to speak the truth in love, of course. But right. to fail to tell them the truth is not by any means loving. Right. And it's not, but as a society now, that's what love is. And, and a lot of Christians are falling into that trap. And it's very concerning and frustrating at some levels because it's just like, man, read your Bibles, read your Bibles, you know, uh, read your Bible and believe your Bible and quit subjecting your Bible's authority to the whims of a society that is rebelling against God. Right. Amen. All right. Anything else you want to say about the abortion issue? Nah, that should do for now. We only have another 20 minutes or so. We still have the rest of the points to go through. Uh, we do have a lot. All right. <laughs> So uh, your next point, you say you're going to work to establish constitutional carry in Indiana and repeal Indiana's red flag laws as they violate both the Second and Fourth Amendments. So yes, there, there is a constitutional carry bill um, that's going through the House that got passed by the House here a couple days it's ago. Good. Do you support that bill? I do support that bill. That, uh, it's, I would have preferred the one that John Jacob and Kurt Nisley put forward because it's much cleaner and much simpler, but the bill that went through is a good bill, and I do indeed support it. It seems that it's going to be held up in the Senate like a similar bill last session was, but that's something else that needs to be dealt with. So you don't think it's going to pass Senate? It's been assigned to the same committee that it was assigned to last year. I think Senator Liz Brown is the one who's in charge of that committee, and she simply allowed it to die in committee last session. 
and she's up for re-election this year, though. That's something that's different. I don't know if that, you know, hopefully and that... It depends on how much politics she is playing. But, yes, that is a factor. Yeah. I know. But, yes, it does It does need to be supported, not just because it's... Well, both issues are present, like I mentioned. Also, repealing Indiana's red flag laws. I don't know if you know this or not. Indiana is the only, quote-unquote, red state that has red flag laws. And those are uh, firearms confiscation orders where they can take your weapons i don't know exactly how they're worded in indiana but they can take your weapons without a trial without a warrant just to be able to do so and that's not appropriate at all that not only does that violate the second amendment which of course is our right to bear arms but the fourth amendment which is is warrantless search and seizure we can't have that it's it's just wrong so how does that play out does like somebody call the the police station and say hey so and so is acting strangely and i know he has guns and i'm worried so then off that tip, they come into the house and they take their guns? That's happened in some situations. I know it's happened in uh, states like Maryland. I don't know all the details of how it takes place in Indiana so much, but I do know that several red flag obfuscation orders have been issued in the past in Marion County for the IMPD to do. And it's in the same category of it at the very least. These kind it's there are Fourth Amendment and Second Amendment issues with it. I don't know enough of the details except to say that such laws ought not be on the books anywhere, and the fact that they're on the books in a so-called conservative state has always baffled me. So, and it, it is baffling, and again, we have a Republican supermajority in the state, and we've had mm-hmm. it for years now, and those laws came about with a Republican supermajority. What what is going on with Indiana Republicans down at the state house? Like, what do you think's going on? Well, that's an excellent question, and that actually fits into the third one too on my list. I'm planning on working to lower taxes, eliminate the 2017 gas tax increase, which my opponent supported. When I say my opponent supported, I don't mean my Democratic opponent. When that happens, I mean Bob Benning, the current representative for District 91, voted in favor of those taxes. The Indiana Republican platform, the 2018 one, it's pretty short. It's about 13 pages long, I think. It's really easy to find on the web. It's a PDF. I read through that, and it's really, really good. I affirm that platform. And one, they say they're pro-Second Amendment, that they want smaller government, that they want lower taxes, etc. Many things along those lines. And I look at the 2018 platform, and I look what the Indiana GOP has been doing with regards to things such as red flag laws, not having constitutional carry, and the fact that Republicans had to vote for this 2017 gas tax increase or it never would have passed because, like you said, we have supermajority in both houses of the Assembly. You're thinking, what are they doing? They have abandoned their own party platform, by and large. And I very much affirm the party platform because I... I'm a true conservative Republican, unlike the majority of those who appear to be inhabiting the state house. So something needs to change. And you're right. And the thing is, is do you think it's because of the Republicans having so much power for so many years that they just naturally go that way because nobody's been keeping them accountable? Or do you think open primaries have something to do with this? The Indiana, the state of Indiana has open primaries where Democrats can come in and vote in the primaries for Republicans. Do you think there's something to that? I know Travis, Trevor Loudon is big on that. And I was just hearing him speak the other night again at the mm-hmm. banquet dinner 
and he's saying that that's what's happening. That's his, that is why the Republicans are acting like they wait, they are in the state houses because it's open primaries and the Democrats are coming into the Republican primaries voting for the most liberal Republican on the ticket. Therefore, this is what's happening at the state house. Have you thought of that at all or looked into that? I haven't thought about it too much, but that wouldn't surprise me in the least. If he's done some research in that area and has uncovered it to be true, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I am convinced that's largely what happened in the most recent election with regard to Governor Holcomb being reelected. The Democratic challenger to Governor Holcomb didn't stand a chance. He received so few votes, it surprised me at how few votes he received. But I think the Libertarian candidate, Donald Rainwater, had the most votes of any libertarian candidate in the history of the state of indiana i'm pretty sure that's the case if not it was the second most yeah no you're right um so i was involved in that race a little bit with donald and uh there there are so many people that the many of the votes he received were from very strong conservative republicans who are are unhappy with how holcomb had been running but the fact that the democratic challenger got so few votes like wait a minute there are more democrats than this they, many of them must have voted for holcomb you're right and if you remember i don't know if you remember this or not but governor holcomb's campaign strategy was one indiana that was that was his slogan one indiana he knew what he was doing he knew he had enough democratic votes to do whatever he wanted to do and he was going to win a re-election so that's a whole nother conversation for another day but hmm. uh, yeah that's exactly uh, what happened do I think there's been a lot of complacency that has come upon the Republicans not really feeling like they have to do anything because they're going to be staying in power anyway? Yeah, I think that's part of it too. Because if you don't feel any pressure, and if you're not completely sold out to, to doing what's right regardless of the consequences, then it's easy to get complacent and comfortable. Yeah, and it's not even – but here's the thing. There's no such thing as being – complacent and not doing anything because when you're not doing anything the wrong things get done so that's why we're seeing this slide down in the wrong direction in our state is because you're exactly right they're complacent and then they don't think they have to do anything they're going to get reelected. they're going to do the safe bet they always do the safe bet whenever you do the safe bet it always includes compromising it always includes compromising truth it always um, involves compromising your constituents to the state. And that is what's been going on for years now in the state of Indiana. I'm hoping people are waking up to it. Do you think people are waking up to what's going on? To some degree, I have to say that they are. And what happened at the banquet on Saturday is a, is a prime example of this. If Again, I wasn't there because I was at my daughter's wedding. Again, that, that seemed like an important thing to be at. But... From what I understand, there are dozens, if not a couple hundred candidates running for various offices throughout the state of Indiana that are very conservative, liberty-minded candidates, to include 40 people who are challenging the Republican incumbents in the primaries come this May in the House of Representatives. And I'm very glad to be one of those. Yeah. this is It's a record. I, Amy Sleister, I think, is beside herself with happiness with regard to all of this that's going on. Yeah. So it's really quite nice. So you touched on this a little bit, uh, your lower work to lower taxes, starting with eliminating the 2017 gas tax. Mm-hmm. At some point, our tax our taxation from the state becomes theft. In yes. your, where, where's that at in your mind? Where that actually be, do you have a line or do you have a good idea on where the taxation that's coming down from the state 
two Hoosiers, at that point, it becomes theft? It's a difficult line to draw exactly, but I would certainly say that anything that is taken from the citizens to pay for some sort of government service, whatever it is, that isn't something that the role of government is supposed to be would amount to theft. The state does have uh, God-given and also constitutional responsibilities, such as to promote justice that, and to uh, punish wickedness, that sort of thing. And if you're taking money to give out in some sort of social programs, I don't care what they are, then you're taking more money than you should be taking because the state's not supposed to be doing that. Families and churches are supposed to be doing that. That's their job. That's, again, that goes back to something that we were talking about near the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about the division of labor between the various spheres of authority that God has established. The state is not meant to be a charity organization, not at all. And if you go back in the history of this nation, before, let's see, before 1910, there wasn't even an income tax, federally or statewide, I don't think. And it's uh, lots of, a lot has changed since then. But charity is not a function of the state. Not at all. So anything taken for that purpose ought not be taken. And it's something that would have to be, might, as far as phasing some of that out, it probably have to be done somewhat slowly because of all the, just how deep it is and how much people depend on some of those things. But those reins need to be given back to those who are responsible for it. Families and by, and a subcategory of family would be businesses and also churches are the ones who are supposed to be taking care of, of the poor who are in desperate straits. Yeah. So that's one example. And there are others that we could point to. But there are legitimate taxes that need to be collected in order to fund legitimate government services. If you're going to be punishing wickedness, you need to have some kind of law enforcement. You need to have some kind of a court system. And people have to be paid for their work. Those kinds of things have to exist, and those come in the form of taxes. As a biblical justification, of course, you see it in Romans 13. The Indiana Constitution explicitly has property taxes written into it, and that would be one way the state would get those kinds of things funded. Um, what about the issue of property taxes? And then again, that would have to be a conversation for another day. But it is in the Constitution, so it is something that we do need to deal with. Yep. And... So I don't know if I can say there's exactly a hard, fast line in it. The case-by-case basis would have to be the way to deal with that, I think. But but you would say there's enough uh, you, there's enough government taxes being collected to where there needs to be a lot of cuts. Indiana, <laughs> Indiana had a record surplus this last year, if I'm pretty sure. Well, we're getting $125 back, David. Well, yeah, I mean, hey, that... <laughs> <laughs> no, they'll take it from the people in the first place. I'm pretty confident the individual citizen not only would manage the money better than any government, it was theirs in the first place. Don't take it. It's not yours. Yeah. You don't need it for your necessary functions. And I think it was, what, a 3 or $4 billion surplus? Yeah. I think it's how much that was. That tells me that the state took way too much money. It did not have- and hopefully people in this election, Hoosiers, will notice that and they'll vote for um you know the incumbents out that's part of the that is indeed something that i'm hoping for and then those of us who get in there are going to have to go through the indiana code with a bit of a fine-tooth comb in some cases and say okay this is not necessary this is too much taxation here this particular program needs to go and and trim the fat so to speak to make government leaner and smaller limited and properly functional rather than bloated and unnecessary Indiana does better than places such as California and New York, I'm sure. However, there is still fat to be trimmed. And as a conservative Republican, I believe in a limited government and small government because small limited government is good government. You want to work hard 
to end the influence and the presence of CRT and SEL in Indiana government and any state-funded education. Such ideologies, you say, ought to be stamped out wherever they may be found. Now, critical race theory and intersectionality and social emotional learning. That's what those stand for. Okay. Now, there, I, I, I read something here yesterday or the day before where the Senate's not going to deal with that. Like they're, they're, they're putting that off. They're not going to deal with that bill. I think it was a senator who came up with that bill. I also heard that Wood has a bill in the General Assembly, and that's the one the leadership in the General Assembly wants to push. I also know Prescott has a bill that is has more teeth than Woods. Are you following that at all? And then I also know uh, Nisley and Jacob have one as well. Nisley and Jacob have the best bill, which doesn't surprise me in the least, right. but there is a bill that they're willing to support called House Bill 1040, which would deal pretty well with a lot of these issues with regard to critical theory and so- social-emotional learning. And there is an organization called uh, Purple for Parents Indiana, and they have been following this more closely than I have. I found out about a, a lot of this that was going down, um, partly from Brian Schrank and partly from them, and just how deep in my uh, primary opponent is in this. Bob Benning is in charge of the Educational Committee, and he has allowed some of these ideologies to slip in and isn't doing anything about them. They are very unhappy with him, and they're the state, the, even the uh, House of Representatives isn't in favor of passing House Bill 1040, which would actually properly deal with this to some degree. They're opting for a much weaker bill that isn't offering the proper protections. It's critical race theory and intersectionality are themselves racist, and it's really a very terrible philosophy. It is completely contrary to, well, not only what American values were, but more importantly, biblical ones, too. I have been reading up on some of this stuff myself, especially the critical race theory aspect of it more in recent recent weeks, recent months. And the more I learn, the more disgusted I am with it. Have, you read, a, uh, have you read the book Fault Lines by Vadi Bauckham? That's the one I read, and I, I've appreciated Dr. Bauckham for years. And if you want to have a good sermon that'll shake you up and it'll it'll feel like he's punching you in the gut but it's a good kind of pain get you to repent the way you need to listen to something Woody Bauckham has to say that's right um and but yeah his book fault lines was very useful on this particular subject but this is it's marxism that's going by a different name it that's the i mean the objection the many times that is raised by the national education association or even various uh, school administrators is that they're not teaching graduate level courses in philosophy on critical theory is like well no you're not but you don't have to be because what you're doing and saying in the classroom on a day-to-day basis is just the working out of critical race theory call it critical race praxis if you will that is the practical outworkings of the of the ideology and it is it is racist it is it undermines um, achievement and undermines responsibility it's continues to castigate entire an entire group of people i in this case white people as being perpetually guilty for having for the issue of slavery regardless of the fact that it has been eliminated in the united states regardless of the fact that their ancestors had nothing to do with it but holding people accountable for events that took place decades even over 100 years ago when no one who was wronged at the time is even still alive that's not right at all 
But that's what a lot of the problem with critical race theory intersectionality is, and it's dangerous, but it's everywhere. It is, I think, the predominant ideology that ex- that is woven through our society right now. It's you, definitely the narrative that they're pushing, and it's it it's completely anti-God. It's completely it anti anti-biblical um, principles. If you look at the Bible, if you read the Bible, you will see clearly that it is not race is not there to divide. Christ is there to unite, and what I mean by that is. All through Scripture, Old and New Testament, it is constantly talking about different races coming together in one mind with one Lord and one baptism, and that's through Jesus Christ. Absolutely. One of my favorite texts to that end is out of Galatians chapter 3, when you, I think it's verse 29, the last verse of the chapter, talking about that in Christ there is neither male nor female, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither Jew nor Greek. But we are all sons of Abraham through his faith. This is paraphrasing them. But the point is, is that all these various distinctions that would keep us apart, and I mean, there are there are real distinctions. There are there are definitely male and female, and only male and female, I might add. There are people who are Jews. There are people who are Gentiles. That's the case. There are people who have various socioeconomic positions. But at the foot of the cross, none of that matters because we're all saved in the same way, and we all end up being sons of Abraham in the same way. And that the text says sons of Abraham, not sons and daughters. And there's a reason for that. It's not being sexist, just the opposite. Probably something Paul got himself into a lot of trouble with some of his readers when he said those kinds of things. Because by saying that male and female are both counted as sons, it means that they are all getting the inheritance rights equally. Because the sons are the ones that got the land inheritance rights. That was the, uh, the law in the Old Testament. Those are the ones who inherited. So saying that women are counted as sons of God in Christ, sons of Abraham, the children of God, sons, means that they get the same kind of inheritance as a man would. And to say such a thing in that time, that probably got Paul more than a little pushback, but he didn't care. And so completely contrary to this, critical race theory is wanting to divide us. It wants to divide us on, on the on long ethnic lines, and it wants to divide us along various various categories, many of which are artificially imposed. That's where intersectionality comes in. And you have the more um, oppression you have, power and oppression, very big, very big factors in how they determine who is worthy of compensation or reparation. But however many intersectional categories you get is how how much more your opinion counts and how much more worthy you are of getting reparations. And like with your like a female, if you're a minority group, um, be it Hispanic or Black or Asian, perhaps, or if you're a woman, then you have more points, or if you're gay, then you have even more points. But I tell you, if you're if you're a straight white male, you just don't get anything at all, and you're the one that I'll be paying everybody else by virtue of being part of a particular category, without any thought as to what your individual achievements are. And this is something that really bothers me a lot. And I mentioned this actually on Congressman Andre Carson's uh, Facebook page today because he posted on there today being Martin Luther King Day, and commenting about how much he appreciated Dr. King and his heritage. I said, well, that's well and good, except that the way the ideology in society is going these days, Dr. King would have been considered a racist because he was very famous for saying something along the lines of he longed for the day when people would be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. But critical race theory and intersectionality reverse that. No, no, no. We have to put everybody into these categories. And by default, they are in this category because of certain characteristics, regardless of how much responsibility they may or may not have taken. 
regardless of how much merit they may have from their hard work. They, the um, critical race theorists called that meritocracy, which is somehow is a bad thing. I don't know when working hard and taking responsibility for yourself are considered bad things, but that is where it goes. So Dr. King, who was held up very highly for such a statement and the work that he did in the civil rights movement, and rightly so, has would be considered anathema these days with regard to this Marxist ideology, and I find it quite remarkable. Yeah, that is uh, that uh, that's good. So, so, and then your last point here on this is otherwise you. Uh, you want to protect your God-given rights as set forth in the Bible in both the U.S. Constitution and the Indiana Constitution. Yes. Explain to me and my listeners what is a God-given right. God-given rights are those that are listed as rights in the first place. The constitutions of both Indiana and the United States understood this. When we have our Bill of Rights and we have, say, you're not supposed to have warrantless search and seizure, you don't have to incriminate yourself, you have the right to bear arms, you have the right to assemble, you have the freedom to, uh, to worship, freedom of religion, and those kinds of things. These are not rights that they believed were being bestowed on them by the government, but rather that the government was not allowed to usurp those rights of the individuals because they are God-given rights. The founders of both of the state, which the state, by the way, explicitly thanks Almighty God for the privilege of founding this state. Read the preamble to the Indiana Constitution. It's wonderful. But they understood that rights do not come from government. They come from God, and therefore government has to be restrained by these constitutions to keep it from intruding on citizens' rights. The Declaration of Independence makes very clear that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is slightly different from the life, liberty, and property. I believe it was Locke who said that originally. But all these yeah. things are true. They come from God. And these things can be confirmed in Scripture. So, and that is what I mean by a God-given right. If it really is a right, not an assumed right. Many people try to assume they have the right to do this, that, or the other, but it's not something that can be justified from Scripture or from the constitutions, well, you would, that just means you want to do that. It doesn't mean you have a right to do that. There's a difference. Right. Then you get judges, right, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes and society crumbles. Exactly. So there's got to be an objective truth that we all are uh, starting from. And our founding fathers did a great job of setting this country up on that objective truth, and that is biblical principles to where um, societies can flourish. And our founding fathers, it was John Adams, I believe, who made this statement. You probably heard it several times yourself, that the United States, the Constitution, was made for a moral and religious people, and that it is unfit for the governance of any other. The idea being that we are expected to be a moral and religious people, desirous of honoring God and doing that which is right, and the Constitution would serve us quite well in that regard. And it also gives testimony to the fact that he and the other founding fathers who put this together realized that they were not the ultimate authority. But they were still under God's authority because the the government could not take these rights away. They had to answer to God, just like you, just like me, just like churches and families. It's it's just the reality. Because, and this is an important principle, and I got some pushback on this from my page this evening, saying that this one person made the statement saying he didn't believe that religion was to be involved in politics in any sense at all. It's like, well, that's ridiculous. First of all, if you're trying to say people need to be neutral, that just doesn't exist. Neutrality is a myth. You always have a position, and you're always, because of whatever position you happen to take, are going to try to work for your goals. 
and the, your desires, your morals, whatever they happen to be, your beliefs and things that you're going to try to have enacted in legislation in one form or another, either to have more legislation or to get rid of legislation. So there's that. But there's also the fact that if the state, and by that I mean the civil government, does not realize that they, thems that it, that they themselves are accountable to someone else, i.e. accountable to God, then the state thinks it can become God because it doesn't have to answer to anybody, and the state is the one that bears the sword. Therefore, they can make all kinds of regulations or be as oppressive as they want because they're the ones with the guns and with the National Guard and whatever else because God has indeed given the sword to the civil magistrate to punish evil and also to defend its citizens. That's what military is for. But there have been plenty of governments in the history of the world that have turned that sword on their own citizens to oppress and to persecute them. It's happened a lot. It's happened a lot in the last century. It's happening right now in certain countries around the world, and increasingly it seems that it's going to be taking it's taking place even in this country. Yeah. <sighs> well, as, as Steve Dace has said, welcome to COVID, Stan, right? Right. That's funny. I, I've never heard that. <laughs> but, I, well, but we think we're dealing with it in a difficult way here in the United States, and they're having some significant problems. You yourself in, endured an oppression from Governor Holcomb and the others that they should not have intruded on you. That wasn't right. And but we look to our northern neighbor in Canada. Yeah. Look at Australia. Look at Austria. Look at Germany. Uh, it's it's absolutely horrible. People are literally being locked into their homes. I mean, look at some of the states in the United States. Look at some of the cities. Look at New York City. Look at Washington D.C. Yeah. In Washington D.C. right now, you pretty much if you're going to leave your house, you have to be at least double jabbed, and you have to have a vaccine passport and a mask if you're going to go into any kind of a business. That's city ordinance at the moment in Washington, D.C. Welcome to COVID, Stan. Yep. That, I don't want that here because it's wrong for multiple reasons. And I'm glad you touched yeah. on that because I skipped those two points. And it does, you, you prohibit COVID vaccine is what you're running on, passports and the mandates requiring said vaccines. And you're also saying seek to pass legislation prohibiting any further lockdowns like those put on us in 2020. As, yes. they, as they are unconstitutional... Unco excuse me, unconstitutional per the Indiana Constitution. So those are two other points that I did skip over there on accident, but that's exactly what you're saying right now is that you're yes. going to, it's nonsense. And now let me ask you this, okay? Say COVID starts in 2020, nobody really knows what it is. We don't know what we're dealing with. Do you think the government has a, a role to play in keeping us safe? Like, so say it was a serious more serious than what it has been. Say it was like the Black Plague or or something to those effects. Then I think people would voluntarily stay home. Obviously, they would handle things differently. But do you think the government ever has a play in any way, shape, or form, no matter how bad the disease is or the pandemic, to protect Hoosiers? Well, the government can certainly say, hey, look, we have this going on. We are in a potential great danger. We don't know what we're dealing with, and this is what we know about it so far. I mean, issue a recommendation. But it's been said by others that even during times of crisis and, and emergency, however long the emergency may seem to last, I'm having a hard time believing we're still in a state of emergency after two years of this. Right. But whatever it is that that time more than any other is when you need to protect people's rights because that's when abuses come because people think that they know better in one way shape or form and it, if you present enough people with that information like you were saying like people might voluntarily cancel things for a while 
They might voluntarily stay inside for a little while longer. They might reduce their travel or whatever else. Because I can guarantee you this, and this is also something that's important with regard to medicine. Medicine is with the prerogative of the family, not the prerogative of the state. The state doesn't tell me how much exercise I have to get on a given day or what kind of meals I need to eat or how much nutrition I need to put into my body. They don't force any other medications or procedures on me. They're not going to tell me that I need to go in and have some sort of surgery done. This is something that I decide on that I get to determine, not them. And to insist that you need to have a couple of uh, a couple of vaccines, and I'll just go ahead and call them vaccines. People can call them a lot of other things. We don't have time to go into all the details on that. Before I can go about my daily life to do what I need to do in order to survive, to go to work, which everybody needs to work, or to go to the grocery store and buy food, which they're not letting people do in Austria right now unless you have your vaccines and your passports. That is just, that's evil. You're, you're, you're basically keeping people from being able to take care of themselves, to be able to feed their families, to be able to work. It's just wrong. Um, and I think I forgot part of your question. Well, that's right. The state is what, what do they have. But again, I appeal back to, I mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, the Indiana Constitution under our Bill of Rights, Section 1, Article 1, under Section 31, prohibits laws from being passed that restrict people from assembling peacefully. But what about emergency? Well, this is in the Constitution. So if you're going to tell me your, your concept of things is going to override what you're going to say that people are allowed to do, then you're free to toss out their constitutional rights on a whim. Let's go ahead and declare another emergency when it happens to come along, whether however much it may seem to be devastating, how much it might not be devastating. Set it out there. I care more about the health of my family than Governor Holcomb does. If there's something I really believe that they're in danger, that there's something going on out there, I'll keep them home. I'll do what I have to to protect my wife and children. And I'll do a better job than Governor Holcomb. That is well said, brother. Um, and even loving your neighbor in it, right? Like I have seen so much damage done in my neighbors, uh, you know, in my community and the people that I know and families, whether losing livelihoods or, or depression or just kids totally. Yeah. the, 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 The kids in this community don't know what it's like to not wear a mask anymore and to know what it's like living free. Like in those two years, there's some kids that are never going to know what it was like to be actually an American because of what has happened over the last two years and taking those rights away and conditioning our kids into being compliant in schools. You have to wear masks. You have to social distance, even though they watch a college football game on a Saturday and see hundreds of thousand people's in a crowd, not social distancing, not wearing a mask. And that confusion is, well, we just got to do what the state tells us to do, or we got to do what our government funding funded schools tell us what we have to do. And just that kind of thinking that's being implemented onto our kids, that doctor, doctor nation, like, it's we're going to see a world of hurt from that, and we wanted to f- love our neighbors, and that's part of why we stood up, and we wanted to love our neighbors in a sense of that we 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 want to protect them from government overreach, from tyranny. We want to protect them from their rights being stripped away from them, and that, that's what that. we did. I'm glad you said that because that's very important. The narrative was pushed on us for a very long time when this was going on for months and months and months. I think they've stopped saying it at this point, maybe. Uh, 
that to you to in order to quote love your neighbor and they would usurp the second greatest commandment to say that love your neighbor which means you need to put this mask on even though it doesn't really do anything against an airborne virus or you need to keep your distance or you need to do this that and the other what or get a or vaccines to eliminate this airborne virus and I'm not going to go very deeply into all this. There have been so many discussions, so many interviews that have taken place, though I was very happy with a certain interview by a certain now very unliked uh, podcaster with a certain doctor who helped invent the mRNA technology that I found very helpful. Uh, but Joe Rogan, Dr. Malone. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try to keep you from getting in any trouble. Uh, I don't. You reporters. should know that I don't care about getting into trouble. Hey, right on. Yes, Joe Rogan with first Peter McCullough and then Robert Malone. But listen to those. Those are very helpful. Before Spotify loses its spine and takes them down. But all that said, they told us that love your neighbor is to do these sort of things. Even though we've never eliminated an airborne virus, viral illness by vaccination in the history of mankind. It hasn't been done. And never mind that unless you're actually wearing an N95 respirator or equivalent, you're really not going to be having any real benefit from having something over your face, and you might make it worse. And all these sort of things are, with all the randomized control trial studies, you're probably aware of this too, that existed before COVID hit for, for influenza-like illness, those microscopic viral particles, masks either had no statistically significant effect or they made it worse. Never mind all of that. I mean, even Anthony Fauci said pretty much the same thing back in March of 2020, and then something changed, and everyone's like, oh, put all your masks on. I, I still don't understand how, why all that happened. But the narrative was pushed, love your neighbor by doing these things. But you're saying something that hasn't been said a whole lot, and I agree with you completely. No, we are loving our neighbor by protecting their rights. Because if we know history, to any degree, when governments come into play and start usurping power that does not belong to them and authority that does not belong to them, they abuse their citizens and people suffer for generations under the boot of oppressive governments. Our children and our children's children will be suffering for this if we do not push back now. We cannot allow this to continue. And we're seeing it, like I mentioned earlier, all over the world, in our neighboring countries and all sorts of countries in the West, where citizens are being very badly abused. Happy two-year anniversary to 15 days to flatten the curve. Yeah. And, and it's horrible. It is horrible. And, but you well, know what? Really being abused by this. Pastors are going to jail for holding church services. It's happening in Canada. Yep. And, but at the same time, praise God, because he is raising up godly men and women. And I'd like to see more men, but he is yes. raising them up. And we saw that Saturday night at the dinner. And it is amazing on how Christian men and women are standing up and they're willing now to run for office, to change things all to the glory of God and for, and for our rights and our liberties. And praise God for that. It's not silent. God's not silent in this. It seems if you watch the news, no, this is, I mean, he brought the whole thing about. I, I have a feeling we are very closely aligned in our theological perspectives. This is God's doing ultimately. It is He yeah. with whom we have to do. He brought this on us, and he's working on all sorts of good things. Ultimately, it's going to be the good for good for his people that this has happened. Yep. But in the midst of that, like you said, we, we people get moved to step forward and to stand up for what is right, and that appears to be happening like it never has before in our state, and I'm very thankful. Amen. Amen, David. All right, so where can somebody give to your campaign? And after this interview, after everything you have said, 
I'm hoping that people hear this. I'm hoping that they're like, yes, this is the man that we want to lead us. And if that is the case, where can they go to give money to your campaign and help you out at? Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that very much. I would certainly appreciate it. I am I'm making trying to make every penny screen before I let it go to be as fiscally responsible as possible. But advertising costs money. It costs money to, to print literature materials and to get out and talk to people. So it will be appreciated. I'm working through Raise the Money. If you go to politics.raisethemoney.com, all one word, slash D. Hewitt. That's Delta Hotel Echo Whiskey Indigo Tango Tango. D-H-E-W-I-T-T. So politics.raisethemoney.com slash D. Hewitt, and you can donate online there. You can also find the link on my page on Facebook, which is David Hewitt for State Representative. The website is still under construction. We're working with that. One of the guys that was getting to help me work with that has been sick for the last week or so, so he hasn't been able to help me out as much yet. But that's coming, too. Um, I'm, new, I'm, I'm new at this, but I am getting some good help. But yes, David Hewitt for State Representative and the link for what I just told you to donate is on there. I would very much appreciate your support there. And if you're living in District 91, in, which is southwest Indianapolis, West Newton, and part of Camby now that they've redrawn the lines, it goes over to Plainfield but does not include Plainfield, goes down to Mooresville but does not include Mooresville, and goes over to the east, oh, just past Highway 37. So, yeah, I would appreciate the help very much. And then also pray right we need to Please. we need to be praying we need to be praying for you we need to be praying for all these other candidates that are stepping up and that are running prayer changes things god is in control he is sovereign mm-hmm. and we go to him in prayer and we ask him to have mercy on us and to help us in this cause of trying to change politics in the state of indiana so Amen pray for David, pray for David. And I want to pray David for you right now, if that's all right. Well, thank you, please. All right. Father God, we, we come to you and we thank you for brothers like David and John and Kurt and other people, Lord, now who are running up or running uh, for office, Lord, in our great state to glorify you, to, to humble themselves before you and say, Lord, send me. And We thank you for that. We pray that you'll be with David, Lord, in his campaign. We pray, God, that you'll give him courage and strength. Um, We pray that you'll be with his family, his wife, and his children, as it's not easy, and there's going to be hurdles in the road. But, Lord, I pray that David will fix his eyes upon you the whole time and know that what he is doing, Lord, is God glorifying you in that I pray that he doesn't fear man, Lord. I pray once he wins and he gets into the General Assembly, Lord, he will not succumb to the fear of man and to go along to get along, but he will stand true to his convictions, Lord, and not compromise and glorify you with his life, Lord, and with his run for public office. So, Father, we just lift David up, his campaign, everybody involved in his family. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for uh, your grace and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, brother. David, thank you, brother. It was an honor. I Hopefully, we can have more conversations. We can meet in person. Maybe we'll see each other outside of Arlington one day. Possibly. We'll be up at 86th Street this Saturday. Okay. Do you go to 86th Street more than you do Arlington? Right, because Arlington's only open Monday to Friday, and I have a day job, so I can almost never make that. But I'm usually at the, there's a church at Planned Parenthood event that'll be there this Saturday. 
and I plan on being there as well. All right. Well, praise God for that, David. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Yep. Bye. Bye.